some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. You know, the one with the guy in the white mask who walks around and stalks babysitters? Hi, I'm Shah. I'm Ollie. And we are Creeping It in the Family, a podcast where we do details about all things horror. Episode 71. Episode 71. I ain't got my book on me yet. 70. 70 look at you. Look at you. So confident and <laughs> so proud of it. It's all like you've got another fucking horrific story today. <laughs> Joyous after, event. After that last one with a girl and I said I don't want any more Yeah, you wanted to fucking like cry. I think I wanted to cry. I might cry. If I get a little bit teary, I'll apologise in future lessons, but it's, uh, it's certainly a story. Yeah. So this week... I'm about to tell you about a story that is so brutal that it definitely competes with Katie Becker's death in Scream. And I'm being serious when I say this. So it's also a story that's so uplifting and brave that it brought many tears to my eyes when I watched the documentary. And just a quick shout out, if you're looking for the story and want to find out more, you need to look at Alison on Amazon Prime Video. It goes into visual details of injuries and stuff. It's not for the faint-hearted, though. And I also want to thank the Crime Library, because that's where I got a lot of my research from, too. So, I'd never heard of this story, which is strange because I'm a massive true crime nut. It happened on December the 18th, 1994, so it was only a few months after I was born, and you were born yet. Uh, But it takes place in South Africa. So, it's Alison Botter, and she was aged 27. She'd been on a night out with her friends and was driving back home to her apartment in Port Elizabeth. However, the night was to take a drastically disastrous turn when Alison parked up, only to have a man force himself into a car brandishing a knife and threaten her, threatening her with it. The attacker ordered Alison to move to a different seat, simultaneously trapping her in her own vehicle. Apparently, the guy seemed pretty friendly. He asked her questions, repeatedly asking if she had a boyfriend, and she presumed that he was going to rob her after taking her to an ATM. He actually said to her, I don't want to hurt you, I just want to use your car for an hour. And Alison had no choice really but to believe him. She begged that he took the car and left her, but he refused. However, this wasn't the case. Instead of parking at an ATM, the attacker picked up another accomplice and the two of them drove to the deserted outskirts of Port Elizabeth, a place where her family had always warned her to steer clear of. When they stopped in the bush, Alison just knew something bad was going to happen. They told her they would have sex with her and asked if she was going to fight them. Alison didn't know how to fight, so answered no, already terrified and knowing that they were armed, so any attempt at fighting would be futile. The two men stripped her, then took turns in raping her, and just as promised, Alison did not fight. She just wanted to go home and see her family again. Afterwards, they attempted to suffocate Alison, at which point she became unconscious. However, when they saw she was indeed fluttering in and out of consciousness, they stabbed her, mainly in the abdomen, upwards of 35 times. The two men assumed she was dead, but when her leg twitched, one of the men decided to cut her throat, slashing at her throat 17 times. Alison pointed out that every single time he slashed, she could hear her flesh being sliced open. Alison could hear the men moving further away and flipped over to her front. She recalled a rasping, gargling sound and soon realised it was her and it was coming from her cut windpipe and that it sounded so loud in the quietness of the night that she was trying to make it stop because she was terrified the men would hear it and come back. Alison actually lifted her hand to her throat to try and close the opening of her cut throat, but her fingers just sank inside. The men were speaking in Africans, their voices still distant. They said, do you think she's dead? As to which the other replied, no one can survive that. 
Alison did her very best to remain completely still, knowing her life depended on it. She could hear the car engine beginning to start up and then slowly faded away. At this point, she knew she was dying and that nobody would find her out there in the bush, especially not in time to save her life. It's then Alison remembered the names that the two men had called one another and she decided she did not want her death to be in vain and she did not want these men to do the same thing to another woman. So gathering her strength, she wrote the two names of the men who did this to her in the sand, Ferns and Franz, that being Ferns Kruger and Franz the Twelfth. After writing their names clearly, she didn't want to leave the world without saying goodbye to one person in particular, so in a clear patch of sand wrote I love mum beneath it. Alison describes what happened to her next as some sort of decision. She says she felt herself drifting up out of her body, floating around 10 feet above the body of the woman below. She looked down at her lifeless body and felt peace and benevolence. It's then she realised that she knew she had a decision to make. She could drift away right then, or she could go back and fight to live. And despite wanting to float away so badly to that peaceful and fearless place, there is still so much she wanted to do. She wanted to live. From her floating state, she saw headlights through the foliage and understood it must be a car on the road. Then suddenly she was plummeted back into her body. Alison started to sit up, but felt a huge wetness in her stomach. It was then she realised they'd stabbed her so many times that it disemboweled her. Her intestines had flopped out of her stomach and were trailing on the floor. Alison tried to get, gather them to put them back inside, but they were slimy and she struggled to keep them in her grasp. In the end, she realised she couldn't put them back in. Next to her was a piece of material that one of the men threw onto her back to cover her. It was a denim shirt she'd been wearing that night. She scooped up her innards and put them inside the shirt, pulling it close against her. She started to move, crawling and struggling through dirt and broken glass, with one hand still holding her shirt with her guts in. But with every successful movement, she became more and more exhausted. At some point, Alison collapsed onto the sand. She says she remembered the peace that came with floating and wanted it so badly. But then she thought of her mother and knew she could not surrender. The trail of blood she'd left from crawling would tell her mother that she suffered and she couldn't have her mother thinking she'd suffered. With this in mind, she pushed herself up again. Crawling took too long and took too much stamina. She knew she had to get up on her feet. It took everything she had, but no sooner had she done it, all she saw was black. But she was still conscious and she was still standing unsteadily. After a moment, Alison realised what had happened. Her neck had fallen over backwards. With all the major muscles on the front side of her neck severed, there was nothing to keep her head upright. Her head had fallen back between her shoulder blades and she was staring up at the night sky. Alison used her free hand, the one not holding her intestines, to pull her head forward and her vision returned temporarily. As she stumbled forward, her sight faded in and out and she fell so many times, but she always managed to get up again. After what felt like forever, she saw the road and somehow managed to get there. The adrenaline was pumping through her and she'd made it this far. Now all she had to do was flag someone's attention. She knew lying down next to Marine Drive wouldn't be enough and that in order to gain attention, someone needed to physically see her. She lurched forward to a safer spot because she was close to a bend and that was all she could do. She finally laid down, letting her exhausted and injured body rest across the centre of the road. It would be impossible for anyone not to see her. The first car that came past stopped, its lights flashing over her, but no door opened. Alison stuck up her hand and waved, but nothing. For a sickening moment, she believed it to be Franz and Ferns who had come back to kill her, but the car simply moved around her and drove off. Her relief and elation went from panic to despair.
While she was trying to reason why someone hadn't helped her, there was a sound that erupted around her. There were cars stopping, doors opening, people talking and shouting, and the scream of a woman. Just then, a young man knelt down beside her, gently taking her hand. He spoke calmly and gently, and although when she tried to talk there was no sound, he simply told her to relax. At this time, an hour and a half had passed since Franz had entered her car, and it was now 2.45am. The man who held her was Tian Ellard, who was a veterinary student. His friends and he had been heading back to their camping ground when he saw lots of thick blood on the road and a naked girl covered in dirt. He said her eyes were open but bloodshot and that she was looking at him with awareness. Then he saw her throat and everything inside it, the veins, the muscles and the severed windpipe. An ambulance was called and Tian looked after her all the meanwhile, encouraging her to stay awake. She pointed to her shirt and he was horrific, uh, horrified to see her entrails inside it but he told her he wasn't about to let her die on that road. More than an hour had passed since the ambulance was called. He reminded her constantly not to close her eyes. After an hour and 45 minutes, the ambulance arrived. Tian went to her, uh, went with her sorry, and was still holding her hand and was taken to the casualty unit of the provincial hospital. She was wheeled in and Tian promised he would be waiting for her after surgery. Although upon inspection, the anaesthetist, Dr. Comin, voiced his concerns, uh, concern that a specialist would be needed to tend to Alison's injuries, the doctor on call, Dr. Volodia Angelov, stated he was a psoriatic surgeon and would be able to perform the surgeries. He put his hand on her head gently and said to <coughs> Alison, don't worry now, we are going to take care of your breathing. When you wake up, everything will be over. You can relax now. Dr. Angelov later stated that he had never seen someone with injuries and in the condition that Alison was in, not in his 16 years as a doctor. The following quote was how he described her. She was filthy, black as a coal miner. Her entire body was covered in a fine layer of black, slant, black sand. Her eyes had hemorrhaged and they were blood red. Her hair was matted with sand, twigs, leaves and dried blood. Her knees were cut and scraped. Her feet were lacerated and her fingernails were black. In terms of the severity of her injuries, her throat had been cut from ear to ear, a wound measuring about four inches and deep enough for him to actually see her spinal column. By some miracle, her carotid arteries and voice box had been missed, but everything else had been severed. There were numerous stab wounds to her abdomen and her intestines had been ruptured and punctured in several places. They had to be washed very carefully in saline solution to clean all the dirt and grime off them but every break in the entrails would have to be carefully discovered and stitched too. Alison was in surgery for three hours to repair the wounds in her throat and stomach, and even then her situation was critical. There was a massive risk of septicemia in her abdominal injury, and the wound to her throat could become swollen and choke her. With this in mind, she was placed in the high care unit and monitored constantly. Alison awoke later that morning in agony, but she was alive. Her mother and father were by her side and both were devastated to see her in such an awful condition, but she was alive. Alison, who was renowned for thinking of others before herself, said, Daddy, please don't worry about me. Although rape was still a very hushed crime in 1994, Alison was completely open about the whole thing and it captured the hearts and respect of the whole of South Africa, who influxed her room with cards of well-wishers and flowers. Detective Nadia Swanpole had a hunch. In fact, she was pretty sure that she knew who was responsible for the attack on Alison. She arrived at the hospital with a thick police album containing numerous black and white mugshots. Alison was certain that she would be able to identify Franz and Tian. 
After all, she had consciously stored all the details about him. However, when confronted with a sea of swimming black and white faces, the endeavour became quite daunting. Her tired mind was still reeling from trying to deal with the events not even close to a day old, and she struggled to focus. But she need not have worried. Among the turning pages in the mirage of photos, Franz's face stood, all, stood out as if it were in colour. At around 5am on Monday the 19th of December, Franz Duclerc and James Kruger were arrested. It turns out they were responsible for more than just Alice's case. On the evening of February the 25th, 1994, a 20-year-old student was sitting in her car outside a pizza parlour in the central district of Port Elizabeth. Franz Duclerc appeared beside her much like he did with Alison, ordering her to move over while he got behind the wheel. On this occasion, however, he had a gun. As they drove off, she began to cry, but then decided to talk about herself in the hopes that he wouldn't hurt her if he got to know her. This is a technique that hostage negotiators often employ, trying to get the captive to view their prisoners as real people. It did not work with Duclerc, unfortunately, and he raped her after he'd parked the car somewhere in Nordhook. She remained passive, only pleading with him not to kill her. He didn't kill her, but drove to a road cafe where he bought her a sandwich, a pastry and a rose. Duclerc talked about his sister, saying that he would kill any man who raped her. Then he drove to a spot near the Pine Lodge Holiday Resort where he raped the woman once again. He ordered her to tell him that she loved him. Finally, he drove back to the city and left her at the beach hotel with the words, you're an amazing person and I hope I can make it up to you sometime. The woman didn't say anything at first, but finally told a friend a week later. The friend convinced her to report the crime and Duclerc was arrested the following month. On March the 15th, 1994, he appeared in the magistrate's court where he was released on bail of R100, which was pretty much £10 in our, yeah. in our money. Duclerc struck again on December the 4th, 1994, this time with his friend, James Kruger. Their victim was a 21-year-old woman who was three months pregnant. Duclerc pushed a gun against her stomach. Although she told him that she was pregnant, he just told her to shut up and walk. Kruger followed. They took her to an isolated part of Central, where Duclerc molested her. After Kruger raped her, Duclerc ordered her to fillet him. When afterwards, she was gagged and he raped her. She complained that it was hurting and she pleaded that he was injuring the baby, but Dutois only ordered her to shut up, told Kruger to put her hands down and continued. Afterwards, they discussed whether they would kill her or not and finally decided to let her go. On her way home, she saw a police van, stopped the officers and told them what had happened. Both Dutois and Kruger were arrested. On December the 5th, they appeared in the magistrate's court. They were released on their own recognisance, provided that they returned to court on January the 5th less than two weeks after they left the courtroom, they abducted Alison. At the time of their arrest, Duclerc and Kruger had only been told that they were suspected of rape. They didn't know that Alison had not died, and Detective Humpole was dis planning on using this information to throw them off balance. He took Kruger aside first, since he was the youngest at 19 years old, and because 26-year-old Duclerc was much more organised, having had a number of run-ins with the police before. Kruger carelessly slumped in the chair of Detective Humpole's office, the detective told him that he would be charged with the rape and attempted murder. Kruger was confused about the attempted murder charge, and Detective Humpole told him that Alison had survived their attack. Not only that, but she remembered everything that had happened on that night. Shocked, Kruger swore and said that in that case it wouldn't help if he lied. He produced the rings that Dutois had taken from Alison and proceeded to recount the events of December the 17th to the 18th. On December the 20th, Franz Dutois and James Kruger appeared in the magistrate's court on numerous charges. 
They did not receive bail and were both served life sentences in August 1995. This wasn't the end of Alison's story, though. She struggled with serious depression following the attack and could not work. The attack had changed her irrevocably and she didn't know how to move on from it. Eventually, she found her calling. She travelled the world and told her story. She became the first South African woman to publicly speak about the experience of rape and in 1995 won the prestigious Rotarian Paul Harris Award for Courage Beyond the Norm. In the same year, she also received, received Feminist Magazine's Woman of Courage Award and was announced Port Elizabeth Sisterman of the Year. After her grievous bodily injuries, it was unlikely that Alison would ever have children, something that the attackers had also taken away from her. However, in 2003, nine years after the attack, Alison gave birth to a son named Daniel, and three years later had Matthew too. I wanted to end the story by reading some inspiring words that Alison told Good Housekeeping in an interview. Life can sometimes make us feel like the victim. Problems and hardships and traumas are dished out to all of us, and sometimes they can be divided very unfairly. Remind yourself that you do not have to take responsibility for what others do. Life is not a collection of what happens to you, but of how you've responded to what has happened to you. Oh, at least it's got a good ending. But fuck me, what a horrible story. It wasn't as bad as that last one, as in that last one was so brutal, but and it was over a fucking period of time, wasn't it? This is one event that's happened. It is, but I just... Bless her. It breaks me. I'm glad it's got a good ending, though. It does have a good ending, and the thing is, like, I was reading, uh, reading, sorry, I was watching the Amazon Prime documentary on it, and they'd, I don't know whether it was, I think it was the Clark, or it might, it could, I don't Did know which one it was. Yeah, yeah, you can see pictures is of it. Is it like a reenactment, or like a forensic files kind of job? It's, a, where it's, it's both. It's got her, it's her story, so she's talking, and, like, you meet all the people that saved her, like the doctor, like the guy on the road, like, oh, they all right. came together, and then... I don't, I don't get, so that car that drove past him, did that car just leave it? Yeah. Fucking hell. I can't think of, an, of a reason why he'd ever do I get, if, it, if, you, if you drove past and saw like, I don't know, maybe like a bit of blood on someone's face, I, I probably might think like, I wouldn't get out, but I probably wouldn't get out, they were trying to hide, but when you see someone in that state, it's clear that they think like, because you know sometimes I people think, set things up, yeah, like but Alison, when you look at someone like that, you think, fucking hell, they need help. Alison thought, like Alison's theory was that it was a woman who stopped because she and, and it could have been through fear somebody could have been very close behind mm. her like but I'm sure that person has to live with what they did for the rest of their life mm. like you know that that guilt doesn't go away but they uh, they all keep in touch and but I, I was uh, watching the documentary and I can't remember which of the attackers it was but they reached out to, to them for an interview and he said like the attitude of, I think it's Duclair. I think it's Duclair. He said that Alison should thank him because she only got famous because of what he did. And he also said he would give an interview if he was given like a third of the royalties from her book sales and all of her public speaking. And he was up, they were up for parole. They can go for parole. Not everyone wants fame. But they can go, like, they could be out. They They could come out. Like, that's not. How many stories do you hear where the, the, when you hear stories like this, it's never a first offence. This is stuff like this isn't someone's first offence. And the courts letting them down, like they'd raped two other women and mm. it had been it had been publicised that they'd raped two other women and they were out on bail for ten pounds. It's the same as every well, not not every other, but like Ted Bundy's case and, and 
like when they get away with stuff, they want to push it that bit further. When when they've done something horrific and get away with it, they think, what what can I do next? Like, what's the next step? And that's when they turn to like what what they did there. That's not just that's not just a tie up a loose end, get rid of it. Like that's get rid of the witness, get rid of the person. That that's like brutal. That, yeah. that that's underlying issues where. Like, and especially the fact that it's premeditated, the fact that his his friend was waiting to get picked up, and the, the, even if it won't like, so even if it won't like, I'm gonna go on the prowl for women, and you wait at your house ready. If they just know on that basis, oh, if so and so comes to pick me up, he might he might have, he might have a girl over at knife point, like that they, they know what they're doing, they'll have a system in place. It's just it's beyond belief, and like just the bravery. I mean, I've discussed this with a couple of people. Sue has watched it, so <laughs> Sue watched the documentary as well. I don't know if Yara watched it or not, but she knew of the case, and I was discussing it with her separately. And like we would, we were just talking about it, and I'm like, we we were sort of all in agreement. Like, if that had been us, like if that had been me, like how do you, how takes, do you come back? It takes balls to just not because she. I, see, some so I, some people might disagree with it, but I I think at times like that, you have the choice whether you live or die. Like you you have that choice. Like when she was crawling, she could have just just chose to die. Yeah, I I I, I, I don't in, in that her. situation. I don't. I, I ain't got the strength to be able to think. No, I want to pull through this. I just want to like yeah. hit. Like when you said hearing the guys going from the windpipe. Like, at that point, I'd, that. I'd just be like, no, I want to die. Like I I, I want to. And go. you know the strength. You know she was walking with her intestines in mm, one hand in a coat and holding her head up with the other because her head was going yeah. back like that. Can't she survived it. I know it's incredible, but you know that 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 has got to be one of the most. Like gruesome injuries to survive. That's forever. what I mean. Like, like it even, reminded even, me of Casey Becker. Like I, like. I was even thinking just of the infections. Like if you, if your intestines are out, like it's like once you get an infection in your body, you are fucked. Like and it's, it's not really just not that they were like punctured and everything, yeah. so the infection could have been sad. But you know that doctor, that team of doctors. It wasn't just him, but him especially did an incredible job. And to look, at, it sounds awful. Like I'm going to say it, but to look at her, you can't see the scars. No. She, you you would not look at her and think, yeah, she's been through that. Yeah. But you know, in the documentary, it does like a reenactment. But you, she's also provided photos of her actual injuries and like the yeah. stitches. That, oh my god! And you just think, you brave woman. Like I've never, I've, I don't think I've the ever odd, the admired someone. The surviving that must be in the millions of to, to one, like millions upon millions of surviving that. I don't think I've ever admired. I don't think I should die, die from blood loss. Like it's she was close to it. Like she'd hemorrhaged and everything. She was, but it, it was just the sheer determination that she she wanted to live and she want. You know, she was scared about her mum mm. finding her like that. And I just, it's so brave. And the fact that they didn't take the ability to have a child off her as well. And she got what she she got what she wanted out of life. But it's just it should have never happened to to anybody. Yeah, I'm, so which the, my worst you enemy. could act like some well. They'd have to be pretty morally um, confused to argue, yeah, but she's made up for life now. But uh, if you gave her the offer to go back in time and that never happened and her just continue with her life as normal, not maybe not, I don't know how much money she earns, but maybe not earning a lot of money from a documentary or she'd take that choice of just living a normal life. Cause like I said, some people don't want fame. Like them to assume, like, oh, well, she'd be. If she was fam- she wouldn't be famous. She won't blood. Some people don't want fame, like, like especially, yeah. especially, and when your fame's evolved, like when when your whole fame, when you're, when when the le- like, like the good thing she's done is she's going to leave a legacy of helping others as opposed to, but but in terms she's famous for being raped and butchered. That's that's essentially what she is famous for. Mm. No one wants to be fucking famous no. for that. That's not something you want to be remembered. She's by. put a massive positive spin on it. She's she's 
She's done the best she can with yeah, it. She's, t- she's, come, she's come out with the best possible. But I'm possible sure that she would uh, rather not have happened. All, all that money is not going to stop her. Like that's not going to help her sleep at night. That's not going to make her think about exactly. it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, how like, do the, you even get past there that? There won't be a day. There won't be an hour in her life where she hasn't thought about that incident once. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the, the, just there's no there's no amount of money that can make that justifiable. Well, it's not just that either. It's like I think it's Kruger that got engaged. So Kruger's engaged to a woman on the outside, and. Uh, she like the mother in so they want to get married and the mother of the girl is engaged to wrote to Alison pleading for her to throw her hand in and say they've had enough yeah. now like let them out what the fuck like that mother is a that, that's a mother like why would you do that it's bonkers what some people do I saw something recently that's completely relevant but I saw something recently where a mother's been I think a mother, mother's been charged for manslaughter because she went out for her 18th birthday, she went out partying, she didn't come back six days and the baby died of starvation. Oh my God. Like some, some people, like, I think some people, when, when they put the term mother, they instantly think that they should, that they have the morals of a mother where just not everything no, good. mother is a label. It, it comes naturally to the people who are morally there, but to some people, some people like just don't give a shit, like it doesn't change anything about them. So. But yeah, it's, uh, it, a lot, of, it takes a lot to, like, throw me. Yeah. But after that, I, I, I remember messaging Steele, but after that documentary... Does it take a lot to throw you? I've seen you cry at some questionable films. Like what? Toy Story. Yeah, but that's not... <laughs> it takes a lot to throw me. It takes a lot to throw me in real I, life. I know, I, I know what you mean. Like so somewhere where you don't, you don't turn it off and then think about it when you yeah, go upstairs. Yeah, I can like listen to true crime yeah. podcasts and not have a problem, but after I'd watched that documentary, I, like, I, I texted Sue and I was bawling my eyes out. Mm. Like I was full-on crying. It was the, just the, so... The thing is with a story as well is like... I suppose a stand she can take in speaking up against rape, but that this is going to sound awful, but because because rape is such an awful thing, regardless. But what she went through was so much more than just yeah. that. Like, there's that, there's that which is bad enough on its own. That's yeah. that's that's that can ruin someone's life on I know its what own. You mean. And then there's what happened to her. So it's not you, she can't. Re- the thing is, when people are just that sick, there's no there's nothing you can do to raise awareness. Some people just are like that. Yeah. That that's just some of the world's got to live with. It's just. I and, and, and people are like that because they get away with it. People are like that because they can do they can do things to women or they can do things to men, and then they can get they can get it locked up and come out and just think I'll do it again. If she ever came to the UK, I'd love to see her. I'd, I'd yeah. buy her ticket to go and listen to her speak. Definitely. She's just I, I just think she's one of the most formidable women that I've ever come across. And yeah, she, I she does. She admiration. sounds like an inspiration. She is. I adored Mrs. Avery. Uh, well, it. this this is what I mean. I think I think the thing is. Uh, the, Kids probably would have been, been the best thing for her because it can take your mind off things. Yeah, never, she said that. She she'll said ne- she'll never forget, her. but it gives her a purpose. Like, when, when, I, I, I'd imagine when she, it's it's kind of survival guilt ish. When when you recover from a, a traumatic event where you probably should have lost your life, you might start asking yourself the question: well, What is my purpose? What what is why am I alive? Like, whereas when you've got a kid, your purpose is to protect them, raise them, give them the best yeah. they can have. So maybe your life's no longer your own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You've got, you've got, you like re- responsibility, like, re- like in your life, is only for yourself. And if you don't, if you don't care for yourself enough to think, you, that's when things can go wrong yeah. and people start having dark thoughts and stuff. Whereas if you've got someone else who you are personally responsible for, that's that's that feeling of like. I've, I've still got that job to do like like in Ricky Gervais Afterlife the dog that was yeah. his responsibility he, he couldn't kill himself because he had that dog it gives you some it give, you have to have a reason to not be like to not not be here 
and that is now her reason so and i think a lot of it as well like throughout the story she was saying like i couldn't let my mother find me like that i couldn't like yeah. i couldn't leave her like that she was thinking about somebody else rather yeah. than herself because if you thought like i, I just I'm, i fit touch wood touch everything i will never be put in that position like that that will never happen but I, I just don't know how you lay there and think, yeah, I'm gonna come out. Yeah, like you just I, wanna I, let I go. Mentality. I don't think. It, I suppose it's one well, of you've got to wait till you're there. Yeah, it's an experience. Which you never want to be. But from from what I've seen for myself, in terms not like personally, but I think yeah. from from the fact like in terms of not giving up and stuff, I put like if, if I if my head is literally be attached to the point where it's like I have to hold it up and I'm holding my intestines in a bag, I just think fuck this. I don't want to yeah. be here. Like I'm, my time's done. Like who knows what she could have ended up like. She, she came out of it remarkably well, you, considering you, you what think she about went How can through. I survive it, or how can I end this quickly? It yeah. might not be, I want this to be over as quick as I can. But it does also bring up the concept of life after death. Like, she, she it, and she mentioned this in the documentary, she talks about it quite a lot, floating up from a body mm. and looking at a body on the ground. Like, does that mean we have a spirit? Yeah. Does that mean that it's an actual thing? Like, what's the concept yeah. there? Like, she... That does have a kind of wound, doesn't it? It does. And, it, I, you know, I, I, I take a look. Oh, I've just noticed as well. I saw the night buckle. Thought you just got it off market still. <laughs> Instead of saying just do it, it's like don't do it. <laughs> I'll take the ones I'll forget. Right, so that well, that was a that was a good one. That I like that. Not as in like oh, but it was a good story. It was, and as I say, um, if you want to watch the I'm documentary, watch. it's on Amazon Prime Video. It's free, and it's called Allison. And also, if you want to find out more, the crime library has like twenty-five chapters worth of information on it. It's it's a really interesting read, but it is it is heartbreaking. So what is it now then? Fright night next week. Fright night next week. So we'll uh, we'll see you on yeah, Monday. Tune in for that. Bye.